You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In, in 1973, I wrote a short story called 12.01 p.m. that uh, achieved a certain amount of notoriety and, and uh, readership and several movies, uh, for a couple of which I was actually paid and for one of which I was ripped off. Um, but that was a long time ago. And then about two or three years ago, I kept wondering what happened to the protagonist of 12.01, a man named Myron Castleman. 30 years had gone by, and finally I figured out what happened to him and wrote a story called 12.02 p.m., which was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And then about a month ago, I thought, then what happened to him? And I wrote 12.03 p.m., and that's the story that Laurie and Greg are going to perform for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Greg and Laurie. p.m. by Richard A. Lupoff. It didn't look like a psychiatrist's office. No dark wood panels, no bookshelves filled with thick leather-bound volumes, no heavy wooden desk, no comfortable chaise for the customer to lie on. In fact, it looked like a kitchen out of one of those slick 1950s magazine ads, cheerful yellow walls, an electric clock shaped like an ocean liner humming away on a small shelf, a formica-topped table with chromium-plated legs and a couple of matching chairs. There was even a tiny stove and a sink in one corner of the room. The psychiatrist didn't fit the model either. No sign of a shaggy-haired pipe smoker wearing a salt-and-pepper spade-shaped beard and a tweed jacket. Nope. Just a pleasant-looking 35-ish woman. She wore her light brown hair modishly short, daringly frosted at the tips, and a modest, comfortable-looking outfit. In fact, with the addition of a frilly apron, she could have fit right into that 1950s kitchen. The only book in the room lay on the table, a battered paperback romance by Barbara Cartland. An AM-only Philco radio and a jade-green Bakelite case would have completed the scene, but here a touch of modernity intruded. Instead of the radio, A state-of-the-art tablet computer cast a faint light on the psychiatrist's face. Well, what brings you to see me today, Mr. Castleman? The psychiatrist cast a quick glance at the tablet screen. Although he could not see it at the moment, Castleman knew that the computer was displaying his personal page. The same thing as last time, he said. I don't understand. The psychiatrist frowned. Have we met before? Castleman managed a wry smile. Actually, it was more like a grimace. We have indeed, Dr. Monroe, many times. Many. I'm sorry. I have no record here. 
See for yourself, Mr. Castleman. She turned the tablet so Castleman could see the screen. He knew exactly what it would say, but he pretended to look at it. A small courtesy. He really liked Dr. Monroe. Please, he said. If we're going to work together, please call me Myron. That elicited a smile. Very good. And you may call me Isabella. Or simply Bella, if you'd like. After a brief silence, she continued, Would you like to tell me why you think we've met before? Oh, we haven't merely met before. He glanced toward the room's home-like window. The day outside was bright and pleasant. He noticed a light breeze on his way into the building. We haven't merely met before, he repeated. We've had this very conversation, not once, but many times. But there's a name for that feeling, Dr. Monroe said. It's called déjà vu. I know that, and I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you do it every time. It's a common experience, the psychiatrist continued. There are several theories as to its cause, but I don't think it's anything to be very worried about. But you see, it isn't déjà vu, Castleman said. I really have lived this moment before. So have you, Dr. Monroe, Bella, so have you. But you don't remember it, and I do. I wonder why you think your experience is different from that of anyone else, Mr. Castleman. Myron? Yes. You mean, out of all the thousands, I suppose millions of people who experience this odd feeling of, I've been here before, I've lived this moment before, out of all those people, it's just a mental aberration for everybody else, but an objective reality for me? That would mark me as a megalomaniac, wouldn't it? Or a paranoid? Or both? I'm superior. I'm unlike anyone else. I am destiny's child. And everyone else, all the ordinary folk are out to get me. Is that what you mean? You put it remarkably well. She smiled. I wondered then, if there is any way you could support your claim, any evidence you could show me? Oh, and, and would you like a cup of coffee or tea? A glass of water? Coffee would be nice, thank you. Cream and sugar or whatever's convenient. She poured coffee for them both and returned to her chair. They appeared for all the world like a pleasant, middle-aged, middle-class couple sharing a cup of coffee. Do you know what's across the street from this building, Castleman asked? Of course. This is a lovely enclave, Bella. The giant cities bustling around it. A pedestrian makes his way through the canyons, jostling busy citizens left and right. He turns the corner, and he's on a quiet little street with low buildings and shady trees. It's like stepping back into the Dwight Eisenhower era. Or the Teddy Roosevelt era. Don't you agree? I do. That's one of the reasons I took this office space. You've walked past those establishments many times. He gestured toward the window. Dr. Monroe did not demur, so Castleman went on. I'd like you to look at something with me. He walked to the window, carrying his saucer in one hand and coffee cup in the other. Dr. Monroe said, we've lived this moment before, have we? Yes. And I get up and stand beside you, looking down into Tremaine Place? You do. Dr. Monroe grinned. All right, then. Suppose I don't get up and stand at the window. Suppose I just stay where I am. What would you think of that? I would be very, very surprised. <laughs> Castleman took a sip of coffee. He bent forward slightly to get a clear view of the street below. But in fact, you will walk over here and stand beside me. You'll take a sip of coffee, put your cup on the saucer, push back your chair, and come to the window. Oh, please, I really don't think I'll do that. 
But you will, Castleman smiled. All right. She took a sip of coffee, placed her cup on her saucer, pushed back her chair, and stood beside him. There, Castleman said. That wasn't so hard, was it? I didn't have to do it, but she said. But you did. Do you mean to say I had no choice? Of course you had a choice. Nobody's compelling you to do anything. But I had to do this. Isn't that what you're saying? Not at all. You decided to do it, didn't you? Why, Bella? Why did you do it? She made an annoyed face. Let's just say I was humoring you. All right. Otherwise... Otherwise what? Oh, I don't know. We seem to be wandering into philosophy. Or maybe physics. Free will versus predestination. Causation versus randomness. I'm not a philosopher or a physicist. I'm a psychiatrist. Castleman pointed downward. Across Tremaine Place, in a row of retail establishments, a dry cleaner's and a shoe repair shop flanked a glass-fronted business. The sign above that establishment read, Webster and Poe, bookmongers. Castleman nodded, pointed, uttered an interrogatory syllable. Dr. Monroe responded, I know that store very well. I shop there frequently. Watch the door. A woman wearing blue jeans, a patterned sweater, and a red beret exited the store. She started to walk slowly away. I know her, Dr. Monroe said. That's my friend Francesca. Francesca de Napoli. We bowl every Friday night. Our team is the bobby pins. I knew that, Castleman said. Now watch, watch. Here he comes. The door of the shop opened again, and a tall, skinny man wearing a plaid shirt and tan trousers emerged. He looked around, spotted the woman, and ran after her. He took her by the elbow, and they exchanged a few sentences. Then they returned to the store. Sounding annoyed, Dr. Monroe asked, What does this prove, Myron? What's your point? Castleman said, Just wait. She'll be back in a couple of minutes carrying a package. Shortly, the door opened, and the woman in the red beret left Webster and Poe for the second time. She carried a rectangular package wrapped in brown paper. Dr. Monroe cast an inquiring glance at Castleman. He said, That package contains a copy of Murder in Covent Gardens by Delia Marston. Chateau and Windus, 1935. Your friend is a fan of Delia Marston, and she's been looking for murder at Covent Garden for the past decade. The copy that she just bought from Jake Webster is in jacket, complete except for a chip out of the base of the spine. Psychiatrist and patient returned to their chairs and sat down. Dr. Monroe said, Myron, tomorrow is league night at the alley, and the bobby pins are going to go against the green hairnets. I'll see Francesca there. I'll ask her about the Marston book. We can get together again next week, and if you were wrong about the book, that will prove that you haven't lived this afternoon before. Will you agree to that? I always have before, Castleman replied. Why should I change our arrangement now? The little electric clock on the shelf against the bright yellow wall buzzed softly. Our time is up, Dr. Monroe said. I'd like to continue, but I have another patient waiting. Castleman said, of course, of course. He stood up and headed for the door. With his hand on the knob, he turned and said, Oh, one more thing, Dr. Monroe. Bella. She had turned her attention to the tablet computer, but she looked up now. Yes, Myron, what is it? He heard the electric clock still making its buzzing sound and smiled. How often had he heard that alarm? He said, 
you're going to break 200 for the first time in your life. I'm afraid the green hairnets will come out on top, but you'll have the best game of the night. Enjoy. He turned the doorknob, expecting to find himself back in Dr. Monroe's cheerful, kitchen-like office. Instead, he blinked at the sudden, shocking display of every color in the spectrum and the crackle of sound that wasn't sound. He experienced an instant of total blackness and utter non-being and recognized the bedroom of his own three-bedroom apartment on East 73rd Street. The doorknob was that of his bathroom. He was clad in pajamas and slippers. Uh-oh. It was going to be one of those days. He padded across the blue carpeted living room, down the short entry hallway to the outer door of the apartment, and bent to pick up the morning newspapers. He always took at least two papers, dreading the day that they would arrive with different dates on them. That had never happened, but he always checked. The sensational tabloid New York Post Herald had a one-word headline set in end-of-the-world type. It said simply, shot. Below this was a photo in lurid color of a familiar face, its eyes wide and mouth open in horror, blood streaming from a gaping hole in the forehead. Even the conservative daily, the so-called good gray daily graphic, had broken out its largest font. Castleman staggered back into his apartment and slammed the outer door shut. He stumbled to the table that also served as his desk and spread the two newspapers. He read the headlines on the graphic. They cascaded down the right side of the page in progressively smaller type. President assassinated. Lone gunman kills Spiro T. Agnew. President was in Quebec for independence observance. Vice President Nixon sworn in as chief executive. <laughs> President Levesque accompanies Nixon on return flight to DC. Nation in shock, flags at half staff, Canada rushes troops to restore order in former province. <laughs> the graphic ran a less sensational version of the post-Herald photo. The ruined face was smaller and the injured man was surrounded by startled, obviously shocked others. They had the look of politicians, all of them staring in horror at the bloodied face. One woman, though, seemed to be looking in another direction. The lapel pin on her unobtrusive outfit had caught the day's bright sunlight and reflected a speck of brilliance onto the camera's lens. Castleman automatically attempted to look at his wristwatch, realized he was still in his pajamas, and peered instead at the antique clock on the mantelpiece. 10 o'clock. Brilliant sunlight poured through the eastward-facing window. All right, it was definitely morning. He'd lost something like 22 hours. Well, lost wasn't exactly the word for it. It wasn't as if he'd blacked out since leaving Dr. Monroe's office and somehow functioned on autopilot for the rest of Thursday and the night that followed. He'd skipped, bounced, jumped, whatever, over those hours of time. From the moment he turned the doorknob on the office door to the moment he turned the doorknob on his bathroom door. He'd experienced time jumps before. He didn't like them, and he kept hoping that he'd find a way to stop them from occurring, or at least learn to control them, but so far they seemed to occur quite at random. Most often, he just lived the hour starting shortly after noon. Then when he reached one o'clock, he'd simply snap back, like a rubber band that a playful kid had first stretched, then released. He didn't know how long he'd lived that way. How many times had he lived, relived, 
the hour from 12.01 to 1 o'clock, only to find himself standing on the same Midtown street corner at exactly 12.01 p.m. Finally, he'd discovered a way to escape that endless loop. He'd taken the elevator to the 33rd floor of the Chrysler building, had stopped to chat briefly with Mrs. Hirschhorn, had visited his childhood friend Morris Berkowitz, now doing legal business as Morris Burke. And then he'd seen his solution, his salvation, his escape hatch from that single eternal hour. He scrambled a couple of eggs and downed them with a glass of orange juice and a slice of toast. He rode the IRT to Grand Central and walked east on 42nd Street to the Chrysler Building. The elevator ride went as quickly as ever. In the suite marked Morris Burke, attorney at law, Mrs. Hirschhorn smiled. I see you're not limping, Mr. Castleman. Sore knee feeling better? He said it was. She said, I don't see you on today's calendar, but Mr. Burke is just back from court. She pressed a button, murmured into her telephone, looked up, and smiled again. Go right in. He didn't waste time on any small talk. Morris, do you remember the last time we saw each other? Burke was a beefy, muscular individual. He looked more like a linebacker than a lawyer. Let me see. He wore his courtroom outfit, a conservative suit from Tripler, a white shirt, solid tie. Relaxing at his desk, he'd hung the suit jacket on a coat rack and worked in his shirt sleeves. His cufflinks were tiny gold baseballs. Didn't we have lunch at Le Valois that day? Yes, I remember. We met there. You were on time. I was a few minutes late and you got on my case about it. I don't mean that. I mean the other time. Castleman shook his head impatiently. You were just back from Israel. We talked about baseball. I told you I was stuck in one hour, living it over and over, and you stopped just short of saying that I was absolutely crazy. Burke frowned. Can't say I remember that, Myron. He tilted his head. You feeling all right? Is there some kind of thing going on that I ought to know about? Castleman asked if Burke had seen the morning headlines, read about the dreadful events in Quebec. I caught the flash last night. Watch the late news on TV. Terrible. Terrible. But I think Nixon can handle it, don't you? Far as I know, they haven't caught the killer, but you have to give the son of a gun credit. Plenty of security in Washington. But who'd think of somebody gunning for Agnew up in Quebec? But you don't remember the last time I was actually here in your office. Myron, what's this about? That day I figured out how to escape. We were talking about baseball, talking about hitting a curve or a screwball, and it came to me. I realized how I could get out of that endlessly repeating hour. I jumped off your terrace and- You what? You tried to stop me, but I got away and I jumped off your terrace. I went straight down like a diver going off a diving board. And I twisted, twisted on my way down to the street. Not just my body, I twisted my mind and when I hit the pavement, Instead of bouncing straight back through time, I bounced through... He held his head in his hands. Myron, I think you really need to see a head shrinker. Castleman looked up, looked into his friend's worried face. He laughed. I beat you to the punch on that. I am seeing a shrink. Funny thing is, I think she thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> I told her about the time bounce and she insists I'm just having deja vu. But I'm not, Morris, I'm not. This is real, it's real. 
Burke leaned across his desk and put his hand on Castleman's arm. Okay, Myron, we'll work this out. Castleman shook his head. He managed a feeble smile. Thank you, Morris. I, I don't have many friends. I, there's Dolores. I think she really cares about me, but it's too soon. She doesn't know me well enough. But you've been my friend since we were boys, and... Burke said, all right, Myron. He picked up the phone, told Mrs. Hirshhorn to hold all his calls. All right, he said again. Just tell me what's going on, Myron. See, by twisting my mind, I was able to change things. I was still stuck in the time bounce, the one that Professor Rosenbluth at LIU wrote about. I remember Rosenbluth. But once I figured it out, I was able to twist just before the bounce. Twist just a little bit. So instead of bouncing straight back for an hour, I could... I don't know how exactly to explain it. Maybe I was able to shift into an alternate time stream? Or, don't laugh, please, maybe by making the smallest change in the universe, I made everything change. Rosenbluth was writing about that too, you know. Chaos theory. I don't understand it, but he says the smallest change could have the biggest results. So maybe I changed the whole universe. All right. Burke stood up. Let's get out of here, Myron. He removed his suit coat from the rack, slipped into it, lifted Castleman by one elbow, and guided him toward the door. I think I can make things change the way I want them to. I mean, it's an idea. I want to try. I was thinking about the terrible shooting in Quebec. Poor President Agnew. I... He reached past Morris Burke and grasped the doorknob. The lights flashed, and there was that crackling sound nearly as sharp as a gunshot, and he clutched the doorknob to keep from falling. It wasn't enough. He did fall, as if from a height, into the arms of a heavy-set man wearing a gray suit and a white shirt and red tie. He'd barely timed to recognize the man. It was Spiro T. Agnew, President of the United States. Arms and legs Jumbled, Castleman and President Agnew tumbled to the ground. No, not the ground, to the polished wooden stage that had been erected on the steps of a marble government building. There was the sound of a single loud shot. A band had been playing, but stopped suddenly, the sound of horns and drums replaced by the screams of spectators. He felt bodies tumbling across him, rough hands pulling him away from Agnew, blood spurting upon them from someone who had been standing behind Agnew. Rough voices shouting in English and in French, and he was lifted, carried bodily away from the scene, manhandled toward a vehicle. As he approached a waiting ambulance, he reached for a door handle. Lights flashed. A sound like a firecracker the size of an oil drum rang out. There was silence, noise, blackness, light, a moment of complete non-existence a return to consciousness, and utter disorientation. The door handle he'd reached for became a doorknob, and he was standing in the bathroom of his bachelor apartment on East 73rd Street. He turned round and leaned against the edge of the white porcelain sink. He blinked, then peered into the mirror above. He was haggard and unshaven. His thinning hair stood out in all directions. He was wearing a set of rumpled maroon pajamas. For a moment, he thought he saw blood on his forehead and cheek, but realized he was mistaken when he stepped back and rubbed his eyes. He shaved and dressed and went into the kitchen, only to discover there was no way he could eat anything right now. 
He padded across the blue carpeted living room, down the short entry hallway to the outer door of the apartment, and bent to pick up the morning newspapers. He always took at least two papers, dreading the day that they would arrive with different dates on them. That had never happened, but he always checked. The sensational tabloid Morning Bulletin had a one-word headline set in end-of-the-world type. It said simply, SHOT. Below this was a photo in lurid color of a familiar face, its eyes wide and mouth opened in horror, blood streaming from a gaping hole in the forehead. Even the conservative daily, the so-called good gray New York Sun Journal, had broken out its largest font. Quebecois president assassinated. Lone gunman kills René Lévesque. Solon was in Quebec for independence observance. Quebecois premier sworn in as chief executive. President Agnew remains a newly independent nation. Quebec, Canada in shock. World flags at half-staff. Toronto rushes troops to restore order in former province. Castleman groaned. He'd intervened with history, all right. He'd set out to save President Agnew's life by moving him out of the path of the gunman's bullet, and he'd succeeded. But instead of averting the tragedy, he'd simply substituted one victim for another. He turned on the television and clicked to an all-news channel. A perky young housewife was exclaiming to a neighbor over the wonders of a new and improved version of her favorite detergent. Castleman blinked. The pitch woman was either his psychiatrist, Isabella Monroe, or her evil twin. And the ever-so-impressed neighbor was the receptionist at Glamdring and Glamdring, Stephanie Holt. Commerce would not be denied. After the commercial block, the station went back to the news, or what passed for news on TV, people sitting across a table from each other talking about the news. You could tell they were really important because they sat at a table. If they had been mere news readers, they would have sat behind a mock desk. The anchor person said a word about the disaster in Quebec, gestured and disappeared as footage of the event filled the screen. There was Le René Lévesque, newly inaugurated president of the newly fledged République Québécois, smiling broadly as he accepted the congratulations of Spiro T. Agnew, president of the United States. Another figure flashed onto the scene, a man wearing a dark suit, his back to the camera, he crashed into President Agnew, dragging him aside just as a bullet slammed into President Levesque. The news clip ended and the anchor again faced the camera. What we've just seen will doubtlessly become as famous and as controversial a piece of news footage as the Zapruder film of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy or the dramatic images of the Hindenburg disaster. The anchor reached for a non-existent pair of spectacles, channeling Walter Cronkite's famous gesture as he spoke of the death of President Kennedy decades before. He resumed, The man in the dark suit has become the most talked about mystery man in the world. Who was he? Where did he come from? He appeared and unquestionably saved the life of one president, but inadvertently, we presume inadvertently, caused the death of another and after a dramatic pause. And then he simply disappeared, swallowed up into the milling crowd of confused, horror-stricken witnesses to this international tragedy. Castleman shook his head. He turned off the TV. He made his way downtown via subway, jostled a path through the crowds and looked up at the great clock in the middle of Grand Central Terminal. 
It was too early to follow through on his plan, so he exited the building, walked down Vanderbilt Avenue, and crossed 42nd Street at the corner of 5th Avenue. He wandered into the reading room of the public library and stood over the newspaper rack. The Star Record, normally an afternoon paper, had put on an extra covering the events at the independence ceremony in Quebec. There were a few more photos, but Castleman could find nothing useful beyond what he'd already seen. The accompanying text had little to offer beyond what he got from the TV. There would certainly be reams of copy written about the mystery man in the dark suit. Probably a Tempest Weekly cover story, headed by a silhouetted male face and a teaser line, Have you seen this man? Odds on, there would be Mystery Man t-shirts and posters in the coming days. He checked his wristwatch, left the library, and strolled through Bryant Park. The whole city seemed subdued, chastened into silence by the events of the past 24 hours. Only one person in the world knew the identity of the Mystery Man of Quebec, and he wasn't talking. He recrossed 42nd Street, stopping to watch an argument between the driver of a spiffy new Tucker torpedo and a battered DeSoto air flight, and shouldered through the crowd of shoppers, workers, students, and tourists. He found the hamburger heaven where he and Dolores Park met so often for lunch. The restaurant was crowded. Castleman stood inside the doorway, absorbing the sights and sounds and odors. A manager was controlling the flow of customers. Castleman spotted Dolores Park. She was taking her meal alone. Castleman pushed his way past the manager and sat down opposite Dolores. She looked up at him and he smiled at her. She had the same pleasant, informal manner he'd grown so fond of. Her hair was done in the current style and her outfit made her slightly overweight figure attractive. She cocked her head to one side. Do I know you? Castleman gasped. He hadn't thought of this. Ever since he'd started his latest phase of his strange life, he'd assumed that the rest of the world was going about its business unaware of the changes he made. But what if he was wrong about that? Maybe some Chinese peasant or Chilean gaucho or Saudi oil field worker had discovered that he or she had the same peculiar faculty that Castleman had. What if somebody else was changing Castleman's reality just as Castleman was changing everybody else's reality? If the time bounce was working the way it had at first, for the first 10 times, or the first 10 million times, Castleman had long since lost count of the repetitions, then when he introduced himself to Dolores, he should be regarded as a perfect stranger. This time such seemed not to be the case. Dolores Park was frowning at him, her expression not one of anger so much as of puzzlement. Do I know you? she asked. She had been eating a steaming bowl of red clam chowder, but now she laid down her spoon and gazed into Castleman's face. He didn't know how to reply. Dolores said, it's very strange. You look familiar to me, and yet... She smiled. If this is a pickup, I'm afraid I'm reading from the wrong script. A waiter, it appeared, with a pad and pencil in hand. Castleman looked up and stammered, I'll have what she's having. The waiter departed. <laughs> Dolores laughed. That's the right line, but I thought it always happened in a bar, not in the hamburger joint. At least that's the way it works in all the old gangster movies I've seen. Castleman finally managed to put a couple of sentences together. My name is Myron Castleman, and yours is Dolores Park. 
Yes, we've met before. The first time we, we met, it was right here, right in this restaurant. I told you I was a personnel recruiter for Glamdring and Glamdring, and you told me you were a legal secretary, and we became very good friends. I guess so, Dolores said. She picked up a cellophane-wrapped packet of saltine crackers and nervously broke the seal and crumbled the crackers into her chowder. The waiter reappeared with Castleman's order and set it before him. Dolores said, I don't think this is a pickup. You don't look like the kind of man who plays that kind of a game. I'm not, Castleman said. But how did you know my name? How can you remember our being friends when I'm not even sure we've met before? I have the strangest feeling of, oh, darn, I know there's a term for it. Now, what was that? Castleman said, déjà vu. Exactly. But this is different, isn't it? I mean, to me, it might be... Déjà vu. Yes, I, I keep forgetting that. Isn't that strange? But, but if it's just déjà vu for me, it's something else for you, isn't it? You didn't just have a feeling that we'd met before. You remembered all about it, and you remembered my name. So it must have been real, don't you think? I do. Dolores, please don't be angry with me. Don't think I'm being forward. What do you mean? I need someone to talk to. Someone like you. Someone I can tell things to. Things that'll seem absolutely crazy. And you won't think I'm crazy. You'll pay attention and take me seriously. Of course. I tried talking to my old friend Morris, and he wanted me to see a shrink. I even went out to Long Island to talk to Professor Rosenbluth, but that didn't work either. He was interested just as long as it was a theory, but as soon as I told him this was really happening, he just shut down. He just shut down. So, so Dolores, will you have dinner with me tonight and we'll talk? You'll let me talk, you'll take me seriously, and you won't just think I'm crazy. Will you do that? Myron, that is the most creative, most irresistible pickup line I've heard in all my 47, I mean 37 years. <laughs> Will eight o'clock be good? I wanna go home and change after work. Where shall we meet? He suggested a little Italian place he knew on 2nd Avenue and she agreed. They got separate checks and paid for their lunches, and outside the restaurant, in the middle of the bustling crowd, she reached up and kissed him on the cheek and then disappeared into the mass of pedestrians. He stood there feeling the wondrous electrical sensation that he hadn't felt since his first schoolboy romance. He went back to his apartment and spent the afternoon surfing the internet for articles on time travel and parallel universes and multiplex realities. He wandered into a network of academic sites and found a long essay on something called Euchronias, alternate versions of the real world. There was even a bibliography of the things. What if the assassin's bullet had missed Kennedy? What if the Trinity test had fizzled? What if Lincoln had caught influenza and had to skip the theater? What if the meteor that crashed into the Gulf of Mexico and killed all the dinosaurs, maybe, had collided with the moon instead. Those alternative timelines surely existed as theories, but what if they really existed, separated from our own reality by the thinnest of boundary layers, but as unreachable as the faintest star in the farthest galaxy? Or what if they were reachable as easily as thinking the right thoughts as you reached for a doorknob? The restaurant was called Pasquale's 840. Castleman hadn't been there in years, in decades, 
and he had the chilling thought as he walked down Second Avenue that it might have gone out of business and Dolores would arrive and think he'd stood her up at the whole meeting at Hamburger Heaven and the yes, we've met before and I really, really need to talk to you routine had been some elaborate, cruel, practical joke. But Pasquale's 840 was there, a modest establishment in a less than fashionable section of Manhattan. He stopped and looked at a newspaper vending machine. There was a blown up photo on the front page of the evening paper. It showed the dark-suited back of the mysterious interloper who'd saved President Agnew's life beneath a bold tagline, Who is this man? A longer caption under the photo recapped the story of the mystery man who had muscled the president aside, saving his life from an assassin's bullet at the expense of the new president of Quebec. Castleman had made it his business to arrive at the restaurant 15 minutes early so as to make sure he was waiting when Dolores arrived. And when she came through the doorway, he felt his heart leap. She'd arranged her hair in a softer style that framed her features and chosen a blouse that showed her ample figure just to the boundary of good taste without crossing the so subtle line into vulgar display. She approached his table, and he stood up and barely avoided knocking the table over like an overeager schoolboy on his first real date. She held both her hands toward him, and he took them and leaned forward and kissed her briefly and gently, but on the lips. She smiled, and they sat down, and the waiter brought the bottle of wine that Castleman had already ordered. I hope you don't mind, Castleman said. I've always had a weakness for Vapolicella. Dolores took a sip and said, I don't mind. She smiled across the lip of her wine glass, managing to look simultaneously flirtatious and ironic. She took another sip of the wine. In fact, it's very good. Castleman gestured around them. Pasquale's was a small establishment, holding just a half dozen tables. Tonight, they were nearly all filled. The patrons were mostly couples, mostly youthful, mostly with the look of the upwardly mobile, not yet arrived, but definitely on their way. Me ten years ago, Castleman thought. Or twenty. Dolores said, It's amazing. I've lived here all my life, and this city is still full of marvelous places I didn't even know existed. Castleman said, I hope it's not too corny. Dolores raised her eyebrows. Corny? Oh, candles in Chianti bottles on the tables, he gestured. Travel posters of Tuscany and Venice and Rome. Italian music. Locatelli, Dolores said. I love Locatelli. She had a lovely smile. The candlelight glinted off a tiny gem that rested on her bosom, suspended from a fine gold chain. They ordered dinner. While they waited for the food, Castleman munched nervously on a breadstick. Conversation from other tables floated in and out of the recorded Baroque music. Talk of the business world, the theater, the latest novel, but always the topic turned to the mystery man of Quebec. Dolores Park read Castleman's mind. I know who he is, she said. Castleman was unable to reply before the waiter arrived with their dinners. Castleman had ordered sole piccata with seedless grapes and capers. Despite his distracted state of mind, he couldn't keep his attention off his dinner. The presentation was simple, and the, order, the odor was irresistible. Dolores had only a Caesar salad. The menu was tempting, but I'm really trying to slim. Castleman waited for her to sample her dinner before starting his own. A gentleman to the last. Who is he? Dolores laid down her fork swallowed wine, lowered her glass. You. 
How did you know? Myron, of course I know. He couldn't help following her gesture as she lowered her chin to glance at the glittering gem on her bosom. We all know. What do you mean, we? Who are we? You wouldn't believe it if I told you, Myron. You'd think it was some kind of practical joke. Something out of an Ian Fleming novel or one of those spooky movies where shadowy figures sneak around changing reality. She paused. Then, just, just trust me that we're grateful for everything you've done or tried to do. I'm personally, she shook her head. I'm sorry, Mar Myron. We haven't treated you at all well. All right. If you won't tell me who you are, at least tell me how you picked me and what you're doing. Myron, we're the good guys. Can you believe that? You've known me for a long time, and you've known me very well. You didn't act that way a few hours ago. Do I know you? Is this just deja vu? And I swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm sorry, Myron. There's a struggle going on in this world. You must know the story of the past century, the monsters, the wars, the horrors. He waited for her to continue. It didn't just happen that way. It didn't have to happen that way. He nodded, waited. Countries get rid of their tyrants and they only get worse ones in their place. The Russians got rid of the Tsar and wound up with Stalin. The Germans got rid of the Kaiser and wound up with Hitler. It happens over and over again. It's happening today all over the world. She let out a breath. Why do you think that's happening? Castleman clutched the edge of the linen tablecloth, his thumbs and forefingers like twin vices. You're telling me that this planet is just a giant chessboard and we're all pieces being moved around by, by invisible hands, by you? Not just by me, hardly just by me. But yes, that image is not inaccurate. The world is a giant chessboard and you are- A pawn! He interrupted angrily. He crashed a fist to the tablecloth. The glasses jumped. A pair of intense young business types stared, then conspicuously looked away. The manager approached the table. Is everything all right? Castleman was going to answer, but Dolores murmured something to the manager, something inaudible to Castleman, and he bowed. Somehow produced a cheese grater and a slab of hard white cheese and ground a coating of it onto Dolores' salad. Not a pawn. Dolores told Castleman finally, not a pawn at all. Look around this room, Myron. Look at the people around us. The ambitious ones wondering if they'll get the promotion they're after. The lustful ones wondering if they'll get the sex they're hoping for. The discouraged ones who just want to finish their meals and go home and go to bed. They're the pawns, Myron. Not you. Believe me, not you. What am I then? And what are you, Dolores? Are you a chess player or are you a game piece? You know chess. I'm no expert. The pieces, the moves. He nodded. I suppose I'm a bishop. I can move diagonally. I can slay with a nod or a glance, but always on the bias. Anything straightforward is beyond my power. And I? If I'm not a pawn, what am I? I suppose you might consider yourself a knight. My armor's pretty rusty, and my lance is getting battered. You can move ahead and strike to the side. Only the knight can do that. Of all the pieces, only the knight can do both in a single move. That's why we need you, Myron. The rooks and bishops may be more powerful and the pawns more numerous, but, but we need your ability, Myron. Only you can do what must be done. 
We need your talent. They wound up at Castleman's apartment. They sat in his living room, Dolores in a wing chair, Castleman alternately pacing nervously and sprawling in a matching chair, stamping from the room and returning. You have a talent, Myron. You have a rare talent. It is not unique, believe me, but it is far from common. We have our talented workers and they have theirs. They went round and round on that notion until finally Castleman laughed. I guess I should be flattered, but I'm not. I don't blame you. Sometimes I think the pawns are happier, but we can't help being who we are. He'd been sitting opposite her, but now he stood up once more and walked in a circle, watching the nap in the blue woolen carpet bend with each step, then spring back behind him. He felt as if that's the way he was affecting reality. Step, down goes the nap. Step away, up it comes. But it was never quite the same afterwards. He plunged back into his chair, face to face with Dolores. She seemed to have waited patiently for him to reach a decision, but he was not ready to commit himself. What if I just refuse, he asked. What if I just say, I don't like your game and I'm not going to play? She heaved a sigh, then reached out and took his hands. Myron, we don't always have a choice. We do, he interrupted. We always have a choice. All right. Her expression showed exasperation, but she contained her feelings and spoke calmly. I said we were like chess pieces, but that isn't completely accurate. Chess pieces have power, but they have no will. You're damned right about that. I'm no chess piece and neither are you. Now wait, wait. I can tell what you're going to say next. Really? You really can? There was no way she could have known about his last conversation with Bella Monroe, but he felt as if she did, or else this was a remarkable coincidence because she was turning the tables on him. And what if I choose not to say it? You can choose, Myron. I'm not telling you that you have to do anything, but I know what you're going to choose to say. All right. Just hold it one second. He stamped to his desk, snatched up a yellow pencil with a lined notepad. He brought them back to her, almost threw them into her lap. Okay, write it down. Write it down. Put it right there on the coffee table, face down. Go ahead. She did. He said, if we're chess pieces, who are the players? Dolores pointed at the sheet of notepaper. Castleman picked it up and turned it over. He read aloud, if we're chess pieces, who are the players? Dolores shook her head slowly from side to side. I don't know, Myron. By morning, he knew what he had to do and why he had to do it. But he wasn't ready to give up, wasn't ready to accept everything Dolores had told him in their hours-long dialogue. He knew that he could bounce from one time to another, from one place to another. There was nothing magic about doorknobs either, but somehow the act of grasping one and turning it acted as a trigger in setting off the bounce. He stood at the bathroom door, grasped the doorknob, and turned. He was standing at the window of a psychiatrist's office on a strangely rustic street, a street that would have been out of another era. He turned and noticed a book lying on the psychiatrist's desk. It was a battered copy of a mystery novel by Agatha Christie. His psychiatrist was standing beside him. Across the street, he saw a row of small retail businesses, a dry cleaning establishment, a bookshop, 
a shoe repair service. The psychiatrist had just asked him what point he was trying to make. Castleman said, just wait. She'll be back in a couple of minutes carrying a package. Shortly, the door opened and a woman in the blue beret left the bookshop, Hawthorne and Twain. A portly man, incongruously dressed in a cowboy shirt, came running after her, caught her by the elbow, and escorted her back to the shop, chattering silently all the time. Shortly, the woman left the shop for the second time. She carried a rectangular package wrapped in yellow paper. Dr. DiNapoli cast an inquiring glance at Castleman. He said, That package contains a copy of Romance at Pirate Key by Frederica Fontaine, A.L. Burt, 1932. Your friend is a fan of Frederica Fontaine's, and she's been looking for Romance at Pirate Key for the past decade. The copy that she just bought from David Hawthorne is in jacket, complete except for a chip out of the base of the spine. Psychiatrist and patient returned to their chairs and sat down. Dr. DiNapoli said, Myron, tomorrow is our bridge night. I'll see Isabella there. I'll ask her about the Fontaine book. We can get together again next week. And if you were wrong about the book, that will prove that you haven't lived this afternoon before. Will you agree to that? I always have before, Castleman replied. Why should I change now? The little electric clock shaped like an Art Deco airliner buzzed softly on its shelf against the bright yellow wall. Our time is up, Dr. DiNapoli said. I'd like to continue, but I have another patient waiting. Castleman said, of course, of course. He stood up and headed for the door. With his hand on the knob, he turned and said, oh, one more thing, Dr. DiNapoli, Francie. He turned the doorknob and collided with a man wearing garb identical to his own, dark suit, white shirt, button-down collar, conservative regimental tie. He had only a fraction of a second to take the man's countenance. Still, it was long enough for him to recognize himself. He reached for the figure beside him. At the same time, he saw his counterpart duplicate the gesture. They took down two others, two middle-aged men dressed more or less as they were. Out of the corner of his eye, he thought he recognized a woman seated on the platform where they all stood jostling one another, a tiny jeweled pin glinting on the lapel of her jacket. He recognized the wooden platform, the government building backdrop, the crowd of dignitaries milling and jostling for the spotlight and the attention of news cameras. He turned his back to the clustered politicians, took two quick steps to the edge of the platform, launched himself like a football tackle at an unassuming individual in the audience, an individual holding something that looked like a camera, but Castleman knew was not a camera. In a timeless instant, he saw the expression of startled rage flood the individual's face, saw the thing that was not a camera flash, heard a sudden, deafening crash. Something smashed into the very center of Castleman's forehead, and he felt himself lifted out of his body, his immaterial psyche flung away from the reality of the surroundings. He saw the colors and heard the sound that went with his transitions, was immersed in the absolute blackness and silence. Yet he detected another presence, still another avatar of himself. He merged with the other Castleman, circling through non-space. For a fleeting moment, he caught a glimpse of the scene he'd left, of people swirling in confusion, of two identical dark-suited men, unmoving, their heads smashed, their faces covered with blood. Uniformed and business-suited security had hustled the two presidents from the scene. 
Video cameras pointed at the platform, news gatherers fighting like football linemen for access to the VIP area. Castleman saw the blue rug of his bedroom rush up to meet him. He felt himself crash, bounce, and then lie still. He felt warm, competent hands on his shoulders, hands lifting him and helping him back to his bed. He looked into a familiar face. He recognized the concerned, caring features of Dolores Park. He managed a feeble grin. He tried to speak, but the words wouldn't come, and he realized that the reason was that his thoughts were so confused he couldn't formulate a simple sentence. Dolores leaned closer to him. What is it, Myron? What is it? He shook his head. He breathed deeply, smiled up into Dolores Park's face. My shrink, he said. Yes. Myron, what, what about your shrink? She'll never believe this. She'll never believe my story. He found himself wishing he had a mirror because he wanted to see the expression on his own face. Was he laughing or crying? He couldn't tell. He squeezed his eyes shut and tried to decide, but he couldn't, and he gave up and opened his eyes again. He tried to read the expression on Dolores Park's face. You're a hero, Myron. Did you know that? An authentic hero. He tried to shake his head, but the pain was unbearable, and he stopped, panting, waiting for Dolores to go on. She said, I don't know whether this will be good news, Myron, or bad news, but this is only the beginning of your story. Truly an evening of special delivery. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Greg Keita and Laurie Allegillaham and the fabulous story by Dick Lupoff. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.